0: We're about to continue our journey through the book of Colossians. We're in Colossians chapter 3. And the text today is Colossians 3, 17 through 4, 1. You'll notice that I'm including 17 in here again, even though we had it last go around, because I just need it. Um, So here we are. I'll read the passage. Join me if you have your Bibles. Whatever you do... Whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Will you pray with me before we start? Our Father in heaven, Take these words of yours and bring them to us by your Holy Spirit. And by the things that come from me today, I pray that you would shed your truth, love, and grace into the hearts of your people in a way that lets us see your compassion, your glory, your beauty, and your goodness. Keep us from... Error and self will lead us into your truth with humility, we pray. Amen. So, preaching this passage of scripture puts me in a little bit of difficult terrain for a couple of reasons. First, whether you're a longtime follower of Jesus or whether you are just new to the faith and exploring things you have some established opinions about relationships in the household. You've seen good and bad instances of those relationships, and you have personal experience that makes it hard to say something fresh and something useful. But what it makes this passage perilous is the repulsive stench of exploitation that surrounds these words and others like them in the Bible. They have been and still are used to justify doing great harm to others. Women are dismissed and abused by husbands demanding subjection. Children are terrorized and scarred by fathers perverting their authority. This text and others like it were used, mishandled really, to legitimize slavery in every so-called Christian nation in the world, until recently, really. Now, Colossians 3 is not unique in this regard. Bad trees bear bad fruit, and people seeking to justify bad intentions will grasp at whatever is at hand when they need it. Despite the dangers And the distaste that some may feel toward these instructions to submit and obey, I'm asking you to come to the text with an open mind, and even to trust that this interaction or this instruction from God is here for a reason, for our benefit. Paul started moving from theory to practice in the beginning of chapter 3, as we saw previously. And 3.17 kind of summarizes all that with whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. To do something in the name of Jesus is to do it on his behalf. It's to do it in his way, on his authority, for his purpose. And here in the very next verse, Paul starts giving practical and particular points of application for every believer in that church, by applying the new reality of the lordship of Jesus Christ to the long-established patterns of the Greco-Roman household code, okay? He says that the lordship of Christ changes everything right to the center of your most familiar and most intimate relationships. Now, it's no exaggeration to say that this message to the church was subversive in its day. It was viewed with suspicion and apprehension by the surrounding world. And perhaps it still is. To make sense of the passage, I want to look at it in the context of the letter, first of all, by restating a few points of this line of reasoning that Paul has taken thus far as he lays out the profound changes in the life of those rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God. So he says in chapter 1, You were once enemies of God, but now you are reconciled to God through Christ, who is the supreme and sustaining center of all the universe. And he says, You have been given a new life of freedom and fullness in Christ. In chapter 2, he says, you're set free from the obligations and obedience to the old religious and cultural rules. These man-made commands and teachings. In chapter 3, he talks about having the power to put off the old sin-driven self and put on the new spirit-driven life in Christ. And in the new reality of life in the kingdom. There is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. You are members of one body called to peace. So the new life in the kingdom of God consists of all these spirit-empowered virtues like compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. It involves bearing with one another and forgiveness and love binding them all together. This is where Paul's taking this church, right? On this journey. Now he's going to apply it to their cultural and historical situation. So I want you to understand a couple things about where that comes from. The Greco-Roman household code prescribed behavior for husbands and wives, children and fathers, and slaves and masters. Aristotle is one of the the essential founders of this, but it was modified and adapted by the Greeks, and then the Romans, and then the Hellenistic Jews. So the the Jews and Gentiles living in Asia Minor, where Colossae is, would have been familiar with this framework that he's using to make these points. And there's a concept called pater familias in Latin that underlies that Greco-Roman household code. And the concept says that the oldest living male father retained great power over the members of his household, including his adult children. He alone controlled the family estate and all the assets. He alone decided matters of family importance, maybe in consultation with others. But he was responsible for all these decisions. He decided matters of divorce. He could legally sell, punish, or kill his children. Roman tradition placed expectations on the pater familias, to behave morally and to uh, raise good citizens. But he was not legally obligated to limit his authority, to limit his power, or to consider the interests of those under his dominion. And Roman society, at the time of Paul, would have considered slaves to be nothing other than equipment or property of the estate. Entirely at the disposition of the master. Slaves were non-persons. They had no legal right unless they were granted freedom by their master. So both Jewish and Gentile believers in these house churches would have been immersed in that kind of cultural reality. The male head of household was the lord of the estate. However large or small that estate was, he was the Lord. His wife, his children, and his servants owed him their loyalty, their obedience, and their very existence. So Paul's message to the Christians at Colossae was subversive by, number one, making Jesus the Lord over the household. Jesus is the Lord, the ultimate authority over the household, not the Father. Number two, he empowered wives, children, and slaves to live into the security of life in the kingdom of God. And number three, he calls for extraordinary self-restraint, extraordinary self-sacrificial love, from husbands, fathers, and masters, as they obey the lordship of Jesus Christ. So one way that he empowers the powerless is by addressing wives, children, and slaves directly in this letter. He appeals to them as ethically responsible partners and as persons, That wasn't important to do in the ancient world. While the world dismisses them as powerless, Paul dignifies them by treating them as accountable moral agents before God. And he called the powerful to account by by balancing each instruction to wives and children and slaves with corresponding instructions and warnings to husbands, fathers, and masters. And this call to reciprocal accountability was rare in the ancient world. So we're going to dig into the the most controversial part of this text. Spend a little bit of time here. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. I will also refer to the parallel passage in um, Ephesians chapter 5, because it's, it's almost uh, precisely the same orientation here. There's instructions to wives, husbands, children, fathers, slaves, and masters. Um, there's a little bit more emphasis on the, uh, the husband and wife relationship in that chapter, so we're going to spend a little time there too. Okay, there's probably no subject more densely considered in the history of the world than the history or than the relationship between men and women, and especially of that between husbands and wives. And as I said earlier, this verse 18 is a tender spot for many in our day. And it's clear that many wish that Paul would have said uh, wives, assert your equal role in the household and family. Share equally in the authority. And leadership But instead, his command to wives was to be subject to or submit to, their husbands. and he basically reflected what was the legal state of affairs and the cultural norm. He dignified them and empowered them, but he spoke to them right in the middle of where they actually were, right where they were found. So what does he mean then when he says, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord? Well, I think that submission first means cultivating a humble and cooperative attitude that puts others first. That's not a really a revolutionary sort of thing. These are qualities that Jesus expects of everyone. In fact, in Mark 10, he says to his male disciples regarding an attitude of humility and service, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first Must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, submission is this attitude of humility and service and cooperation. But it's also intelligent and it's morally upright. Paul uses submit for women and obey for children and slaves. The word choice is conscious and consistent in his teaching. Submission suggests intelligent moral action. Colossians 3.18 puts it, Submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And it goes on to say, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Now as the church submits to Christ... So also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now a wife might ask, really? In everything? And Well, the answer is yes and no, right? Yes, as long as the submission is consistent with the way that we submit to the Lordship of Christ personally. As long as it advances the purposes and the glory of the Lord. It's intelligent moral action. And that is to say, of course, that there are limitations which call for wisdom. A wife was not obligated to worship her husband's pagan family gods in Paul's day. Nor is she obligated to watch her husband's internet pornography in our day. Her first level of submission is to the Lord. Then to her husband, as her husband reflects the will and ways of the Lord. I think it's important to recognize that voluntary submission in the form of respect meets a deep need in the husband. Ephesians 5.33 spells it out as, as a summary of that passage, where it says, However, each one of you husbands also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Husbands long to receive their wives' respect. A wife can crush her husband by disrespecting him, and she can make him sore with her affirmation. It's the way we're made. So to summarize, wives, submission to your husband does not mean unquestioning, unqualified, blind obedience to every request or decision. Rather, it means that a wife should conform her whole life to the pattern of humble, sacrificial service in the name of the Lord Jesus. And in marriage, she should endeavor to cooperate with and respect her husband. Husbands, in my view, are presented with the more daunting challenge. Paul commands husbands to love their wives. No exceptions, no limitations. Rather than underscoring the rights and privileges of the husband, he calls husbands to a far deeper obligation than the old household code calls them. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. Now, husbands, if you want to feel inadequate in a hurry, think about that comparison for a while. Marriage in the ancient world, especially the Roman world, was primarily a matter of producing a legitimate heir, not a relationship grounded in love. Uh, One historian said that love in marriage was a stroke of good fortune but not the basis of the institution. And Sorinus of Ephesus, who was a famous Greek physician at the end of the first century, wrote in one of his textbooks that, since women are married for the sake of bearing children and heirs, and not for pleasure and enjoyment, it's absurd to consider rank and family of the rank and wealth of the family line, but not inquire about their capacity to bear children. You see, husbands in the pagan world were free to seek pleasure and enjoyment outside of marriage. You see. Paul sets that assumption squarely in the garbage heap. And he presents Christian marriage as an entirely different covenantal experience. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Again, Ephesians 5 really better illustrates the point in some ways. The first statement in the Ephesians 5 passage is 21, where it says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's mutual submission. The lordship of Christ controls all the interactions. And the husband is to adopt the same attitude of humility and service toward his wife as his wife does towards the husband. And then Paul urges husbands to love their wives with the kind of self-sacrificial love that Christ showed the church, giving himself up for her to make her holy and blameless. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, he says, feeding and caring for them. Domineering, tyrannical, harsh treatment of the wife is utterly excluded. It just doesn't make sense. There's no way to fit that in here. And there appear to be no real exceptions, no conditions under which one's love for his wife should be withdrawn. Just as Jesus loved his church despite her unfaithfulness, And he continues to wash and purify his church to present her blameless and holy. And finally, Paul justifies this complete devotion to the well-being and flourishing of the wife by pointing to the creation mandate to become one flesh in marriage. Such that loving your wife is so natural, it feels like whatever you do for her, you're actually just doing for yourself. In this way, the husband's love meets his wife's deep need for love and attachment. A husband can truly crush his wife into a shell of herself by withholding his love or empower her to flourish with faithful love and care. No, there's a lot of nuance here and there's a lot of complexity that I can't really go into. I can't qualify everything precisely. And I invite further dialogue about this. Um, It's controversial. There's some things in here that are just not easy. And we'll have opportunity to talk about that next week. But I invite dialogue sooner if you have questions or comments. Um, Reach out to me. All right, we're going to save the message on Christian parenting for another day. So we're going to put 20 and 21 on the shelf for now. Um, Let's say you're in a stage of life right now where you are neither husband nor wife, nor child or parent even. There's still something pertinent in here for you. And it begins in verse 22. Now, slaves... Or the backbone of the Roman economy for domestic work and field and mining labor. And Paul is really not overlooking the harsh reality of slavery in his, in his writings, any more than I think we should overlook the harsh reality of slavery in our nation's history or in the current world of human trafficking and modern-day slavery. But nevertheless, Paul gave instructions to slaves and masters where they were, because that's where God saved them. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, he says about slaves, each one of you should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, he says. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the slave's freedman. Similarly, he who was a freedman when he was called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Why doesn't he condemn slavery in this passage in Colossians or in Corinthians? It's because it's not his main concern. He knows he can't change the worldwide cultural institution of slavery in a letter to the church at Colossae. His concern is the holiness and the well-being of the church and the glory of God. Paul truly believes the good news that Jesus Christ grants eternal life to those who trust him, whatever their place in life. His one central message, again and again, is trust Christ as Savior and as Lord. Everything else pales in comparison. So whatever your station in life, student, employee, part-time employed, unemployed, poor, rich, retired, healthy, sick, exhausted, refreshed, Old, young. None of that ultimately matters. What does matter is that wherever you are, whatever you do, if Paul can say this to slaves, he can say it to every one of us. Wherever you are, whatever you do, know that you are working not for men, but for the Lord. That's verse 23. So work from your heart. Put your soul into what you do. The Lord is watching. What does matter is that if you're in Christ, you've begun to receive the inheritance from the Lord. Paul speaks of in verse 24. And you will experience the consummation of that inheritance when Jesus comes again. And when the kingdom comes comes in its fullness. What does matter is that the Lord will put everything right when he comes again. The justice will be done without favoritism. Verse 25 shows that God does not discriminate as people do. So this is tough. We're talking about our basic everyday household relationships, the gritty specifics of how we live out these day-to-day interactions. And in the grind of life, we often miss the mark, don't we? I have a couple of observations here that I want to make at the end that hopefully will help you see a way forward because it is hard it's hard to live out the new life in christ in the very specific particular events of the day the first observation is that suffering and self-denial are the roads that we must walk to follow in the way of christ So when wives are called to exercise submission, that's an exercise in self-restraint. It's an exercise in giving something up, relinquishing rights, relinquishing self-will to pursue humble service for others. When husbands are called to love their wives, They're called to exercise self-restraint, to give up their rights, to cultivate a selfless love for the purposes of the well-being of their wife. And you can see how this is true in every relationship in the household, right? Every person must relinquish their self-will. That means deny yourself in order to serve and love the other. Now, maybe you've heard about that before. Maybe you remember when Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. There's that daily part, right? For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's what it looks like to take off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, the self that's being renewed in knowledge and the image of its creator, day after day after day. Self-denial and suffering are the roads we take to follow in the way of Christ. Secondly, everything depends on submitting to the Lordship of Christ in your life. The attitudes of submission and love between husbands and wives, obedience and care between children and parents, these kind of attitudes provide the only viable foundation for truly flourishing Human relationships. And the lordship of Jesus Christ provides the only sustainable and rational basis for living that way. When Christ is at the center of everything in your life, when he is your Lord, submission, love, obedience, and care Become the natural way of being in community with him and with others. With the ones he loves. Paul calls us to live by faith and obedience in each of these daily interactions where we are prone to live by the power of our flesh. These intimate relationships, these household relationships, are the crucible for our deepest joy and our deepest pain. And when things break down, we're strongly tempted to lash out, to to blame the other for failing to play their part, their proper role in the relationship. You're not submitting to me. You're not respecting me. Well, You're not loving me. That's as far from the spirit and intent of this passage as you can get. That kind of blaming and condemnation is life in the flesh, not life in the spirit. And that's one common response. Use these commands as a club to thrash and condemn the other. But another response is to just use their failure as an excuse to withhold the respect or the love or the obedience or the care needed by the other one, by your partner. They don't deserve my love or submission. That's right. They don't. But neither do you. Because that's the gospel. Their worthiness is no more the basis of your love than your worthiness is the basis of the love of God for you. In the kingdom of God, we no longer live on a transactional basis. Because when we were dead in our sins, God made us alive in Christ. Forgiving our sin and canceling our debt. He rescued us from darkness. And he brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. Where Jesus is Lord. Therefore, we live with gratitude in a world of abundance where we grant grace as freely as we receive grace. Everything depends on submitting to Jesus as Lord in the center of our life. So whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all on behalf of Jesus, in the way of Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father, through him. And you can be sure that whenever you do something in his name, in his way, Jesus will help you to do it. We pray. Thank you, our Lord, for the grace that is ours through Christ. Thank you that we are received unworthy our debt is canceled, our sins are paid, our sins are covered, and that we have the hope of eternal life and inheritance with you in your great and coming kingdom by the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. Amen.